Now let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. For those of you who are here, I've been preaching, of course, the book of Romans on Sunday evenings, and uh, we uh, surveyed verses 6 through 11 last Sunday night. Well, I have loose ends to tie, and I'm going to tie them this morning by looking especially at verse 10 of Romans 5. I would like to begin reading, however, at verse 6 through verse 11. Let's be briefly pray. Our Father, as we turn to your word that is inerrant in the whole and in the part, given by divine inspiration, we bless your name that you have given to us this word and have not left us in the dark about who you are and what redemption in Christ means for us, about faith in Christ and faith in Christ who died for sinners. And Father, undoubtedly there are those here this morning who do not know you, and we pray that they will come to know you today. But may we as your people grow in grace and be adoring of this great and magnificent Christ and what you have done for us through his shed blood. Deepen our understanding of the truth and give to us the ability to set everything else aside and to focus now upon these wonderful truths found here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. This is the word of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now taking this entire section uh, today, keeping all of it in mind, look again at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, last Sunday evening I began with a question, and it's a very pertinent question, a very important one. What do you know about the love of God? And certainly we could all say something about the love of God, that God is love. It's essential to his nature. We could speak of the sovereignty of his love and the comprehensiveness of his love and the particularity of his love. But what we see when we come to this text is that the love of God is discerned most clearly, tenderly, powerfully, and incomprehensibly in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw, as we summarized this section of Scripture Sunday night, that it is love for the ungodly, it is timely love, it is unheard of love, it is a wrath-delivering love, a love that reconciles and a love that incomprehensibly gave his own son. Now we're going to summarize some of what we said last week and add a few things, but let's begin by by focusing on this point. 
God incomprehensibly sent his own son for ungodly enemies. God incomprehensibly sent his own son for ungodly enemies. Again in verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And in verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Yes, Christ died for the ungodly. That means there's hope for me and there is hope for you. Let it sink in. He died not for good people, not for righteous people, not for people who could bring themselves into a savable state, not for people who could redeem themselves. He died for the ungodly. The image of God is horribly defaced. We have become, all of us, ungodly. We have spurned his love, rejected his voice, openly attacked his character. We have become sinners under his wrath. These are the sorts of folk for whom God the Father sent his Son. And that's love, my friend. That is almighty, efficacious love. And God's love is antecedent love. That is, before we had any love for him at all, God loved us, his people. What love does a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, have for God? We had no love for him, and we had nothing to offer, but he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. John tells us, God's love is for, according to this section, the helpless, the ungodly sinners, and enemies of God. There is no motivation outside of himself to love us, to save us, to redeem us. Let me just put it plainly. We are not worth the cross. Christ did not come for us because we were worthy. He loved us because he loved us. Years ago, I remember a well-known radio personality, fellow that you would, his name you would know if I repeated it, who described the cross and the work of Jesus in this way, that we were just a string of pearls, and because of sin, the string was broken, and we we're all on the ground, but we're still pearls. And the work of the cross is simply to pick up all the pearls again and to restring the pearls. Well, that completely misrepresents what he has done for us. He did not come for us because we were worthy. He showed his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were at enmity with God. We were helpless, ungodly sinners, and his love was totally unconstrained love. Now that's love. What can convince us of the love of God more than the character of those for whom Christ died and that he gave his only son for us? Ungodly, without strength, total inability, nothing we could do to save ourselves. Now, do we really understand this? Do we really grasp this? That God's love was the fount that sent out his own son for us. And that's the point of the first section in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, the father sent the son. Again, here in verse 8, God, meaning the father, shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the text marvelously teaches us that we are reconciled to the father 
It is the love of the Father that is demonstrated through the cross. Sometimes people have a wrong idea about this matter. Sometimes people have the idea that the cross somehow made the Father love us. Nothing could be further from the truth. The cross did not twist the Father's arm behind his back in order to force us, force him to love us. The cross was the Father's plan all along. The cross came from the Father's loving heart. John Kent, in one of his great hymns, puts it this way, "'Twas not to make Jehovah's love towards the sinner flame that Jesus from his throne above a suffering man became. "'Twas not the death which he endured nor all the pangs he bore that God's eternal love procured, for God was love before. But when we contemplate that God the Father gave his own son, the second person of the Trinity, who with the Father is worshipped and glorified, between whom there was eternal loving fellowship in one being, who can contemplate it? My friends, it is beyond all praising that God would give his son for us. God the Father gave his own son in wrath-bearing love. He died for us. And all that death means, physical death, bearing the penalty of our sins, taking our hell, the wrath of God poured out upon him in our place. That's incomprehensible love, is it not? But then secondly, will you also see with me, what did the love of the cross accomplish? And what was its result? What did the love of the cross accomplish and what was its result? Now, first remember that the cross is fundamentally about the removal of wrath by substitution. In our place condemned he stood. The core meaning of the cross was that Christ removed the wrath of God for whom he substituted himself. You will recall in chapter 3 of Romans verse 25 speaking of Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is to say, he put him forth to bear the wrath of God in our place. So Christ was a real substitute for those for whom he died, and therefore he accomplished what he intended. He didn't just do so much if you do the rest. God's love for sinners God's love for sinners did not depend upon conditions. Least of all, our permission. God did not ask permission to love us. He did not ask permission to elect us. He did not ask permission to make a covenant of grace to save us or to send his son to save us from our sins and redeem us. These things were before we were born. God's love does not depend upon conditions, and the achievement of the cross does not depend upon our permission. Now remember, I've illustrated this perhaps a while back in this way, and I think it's a rather powerful way to think of it. A wealthy man visits you, and there you are in prison, languishing in prison. There you are, behind bars, behind walls, uh, chained And he says to you, I have sufficient capital to pay your debt, and I will set you free. I'll do that on condition that you free yourself from your chains and burst open the prison doors and come out. 
Alas, you exclaim, your kindness does nothing for me. It does not reach my need. Well, that's some people's view of the cross. There you are. You're behind the prison wall. You're in chains. And Jesus comes and says, I paid the price if, if, if you free yourself from your chains. My friends, Jesus has done everything in the cross. It's not he has done all he could and you do the rest. The cross is the battering ram that breaks down the prison walls. The cross is the shears that cut the chains that bind you to sin and Satan. Jesus actually achieved his purpose when he shed his blood on the cross. So what was the result of this achievement of Christ on the cross? Well, they are many, manifold. But the one that is emphasized in this passage in our text is reconciliation. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We were reconciled. We were enemies, but now have been made his friends. An old writer put it this way. Reconciliation means that the transgressors of the divine law have been restored to the judicial favor of God through Christ having closed the breach which sin had made between them. Reconciliation effects no change in God himself, but it does in the administration of his government. His law now regards with approbation those against whom it was formerly hostile. There has been a change of relation between those for whom Christ died, and the judge of all. And can you not say from your heart, this meets my need. (laughs) I was unreconciled to God. I was his enemy. And now his entire relation to me has changed. His law has been satisfied. His wrath has been spent. And amazingly, when we were enemies... He loved us. The cross is all about his initiative. How could it be otherwise? But it is amazing. Amazing, too, is the application of redemption, enabling us to rely by faith on the achievement of Christ. Someone actually sent an illustration to me this week that if I mentioned the minister's name, only a couple of you would know his name, but I found it to be rather powerful. This minister has a grandson. I think the grandson's name was Will. When Will comes over, the granddad, who's a minister, he likes to play with his grandson. So he says, Will likes to go out into the road, like most children do. He says, Will, don't go in the road. Will, don't go in the road. Will, don't go in the road. Repeats himself. Well, someone says, Will's going out into the road. Why don't you stop him? He says, well, I don't want to hinder his free will. You get the point. To love will means to intervene, doesn't it? It means to stop him. That's the love of the cross. That's the application of redemption. That's what God has done for us as people. That's what he's doing in some of your hearts even now as you hear the gospel and gradually you're beginning to understand God is intervening through his Holy Spirit to apply the work of the cross to your life. Left to yourself, you would go in the road. Left to yourself, you are bound for hell. 
God's intervening love stops that, recalls you, reclaims you, shows fatherly love to you. Love intervenes. Someone undoubtedly is here this morning, and the greatest need of your life is to have your confidence in your own ability shattered. May the Holy Spirit show you the gravity of your position as an unconverted person. And by God's Spirit, may you see yourself as a sinner, totally ruined and impotent. Well, you say, Pastor, this is truly amazing, what we've seen in this text. The reconciliatory work of Christ on the cross, when we were enemies, God loving us, This is truly amazing. It's more than I can take in. Well, the Apostle Paul just keeps pouring it on. Remember verses 9 and 10 are a fortiori arguments. How much more arguments? We read here in verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. But our focus is here on verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Which leads us to the third thing we want to see. God's love is shown in the how much more of salvation through Christ's life. Now look at it again. This second portion here. Much more Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What does Paul mean by this? He intends for us to think about it. He intends for us to understand it. He intends for us to unpack it for our Christian living. Well, let's think about it. What does it mean that we are saved by his life? It doesn't mean the life of Christ before the cross. It means the life of Jesus after the cross. It means, first of all, that we are saved by Christ's resurrection from the dead. It is the resurrection life that Paul has in mind when he says, saved by Christ's life. In chapter 4, verse 25, we are told that Christ did not remain under the condemnation of our sins, but was raised for our justification. A dead Christ would remain unjustified, unvindicated. But Christ took our condemnation and death. He did not remain under the condemnation and death as a result of his work on the cross. This is what it means to be saved by his life. It means that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And we are saved by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection life of Christ continues on. What else does it mean to be saved by his life? It means also that we are saved by Christ's ascension. And all of the implications of that for us, his people. The ascension of Christ means that the dust of earth is now on the throne of heaven. That the Son has returned to the glory that he had before ever the world was with his Father. That the Father has placed all things in subjection under the exalted Christ. That Jesus in his human and divine nature is the center of natural creation and will be the center of the new creation. That he upholds the universe. That Christ is the head and life giver of the church who has poured out the spirit upon the church 
And the final victory belongs to him who will come in conquest at the end of the age. That is what it means to be saved by Christ's life. We're not done. It means also Christ's heavenly session at the right hand of the Father. It means that he is our great intercessor for us. What is the exalted Christ now doing? Well, since we're here in the book of Romans, turn to chapter 8. And notice verses 31 through 34. Romans 8, 31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and look at this, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What is he doing in his resurrection, ascension life? He is interceding for you, believer. What does that mean? It does not mean that Christ pleads with an unwilling father. It means that Christ's sacrifice has been completed once for all, but that the power, the efficacy of his sacrifice is inexhaustible, that purification for sins has been made, but it is applied to our hearts now in our lives. So when the evil one says, look at you, what a mess you are, what a sinner you are, What a guilt-ridden sinner. You sing, arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. I have a Savior who rose, who ascended, who is sitting on the right hand of the Father, who is interceding for me. I can't help but read this to you. John Murray speaks of the security of his exalted glory when he speaks of Romans 8.34. And he says, the intercession is appealed to here for the purpose of assuring believers that there is an abiding concern on the part of the exalted Lord with the conflicts and trials which beset the people of God. And that this concern expresses itself in prayer on their behalf. That none of the assaults upon them will be successful in sundering the bond that unites them to him, and that they will be more than conquerors in every engagement with their adversaries. In a word, it is an intercession directed to every exigency of their warfare and therefore to supply the grace for every need. It means that he is interceding for you. But that's not all. To be saved by his life not only means that he has been raised from the dead, not only means that he has ascended, not only means that he is at the right hand interceding, but it means that he is coming again in glory. That is part of the life of Christ that saves us. And the consummation of the kingdom and the renewal of creation. As Herman Bovink put it, the essence of Christianity consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God, and you are a part of it. And not only that, it means, well, it means something really incomprehensible. 
you turn to Revelation 5, you see the praise before the throne and the picture of all of those saved by the blood of the Lamb. And we read in verse 9 of Revelation 5, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What does it mean to be saved by His life? Jesus says in Revelation 1.18, I am alive forevermore. And in Revelation 5, the Lamb once slain now stands. He lives, and the victory of God in this world is represented to us in Revelation 5.11 in this remarkable way. Numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. What is a myriad? The Greeks didn't have numbers, set symbols for numbers as we did. And so they used their, the letters of their alphabet for numbers. They used four series of letters. The first ran up to nine, the second from 10 to 90, then 100 to 900, and so forth. Using the symbols over again with a point on the end of the letter... to represent thousands. So any sum up to 9,999 could be represented by Greek letters. To go further, they would write a large M and then they'd start all over again at at the corner. So when we see myriads... 99,999,999 and if we add one to that because that's as far as they could use their alphabet we get 100 million or 10,000 times 10,000 and that is the multitude which no man can number In other words, what is being portrayed to us, I'm alive forevermore. And it is beyond the biggest sum that can be represented in Greek notation, beyond what the mind can imagine or contain, Jesus is saying to us his people, not one of them for whom I gave my life, not one of them will be lost Mr. Kimball I hope my math is right but if it isn't it's beyond anything I could express anyway (laughs) so we are saved by Christ's life look again there in the book of Romans 
in that wonderful chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We are saved by his life, saved in his resurrection, saved in his ascension, saved in his intercession at the Father's right hand, saved in his coming again in glory, saved in his renewal of the creation at the end of time. And then no wonder Paul the Apostle draws a conclusion in Romans 5.11 that we should be joyful about it. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Oh, my friends, are you joyful? Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said, the miserable Christian is guilty of unbelief. Are we joyful? When we understand that we are reconciled, that we are saved by the ongoing resurrection and ascension life of Christ, then we love and praise God and we have him as our chief delight. Will you grasp the truth and reality of the text? Will you grasp chapter 5, verse 1, that says we have peace with God having been justified by faith? And if while you were God's enemy, God's attitude was such that he sent his son to die for you and to show his love for you, will God's attitude change now that Christ has shed his blood? Certainly not. Since God determined to treat Christ like you and to treat you like Christ, to save you when you were his enemies, to remove his wrath, to take away the offense that separated you, he will never, 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 never become unreconciled to you. And he sits upon his throne to prove it. And we sang these words before we turn to the text. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. A royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. The highest place that heaven affords is his, is his by right. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, and heaven's eternal light. And so I want you to remember people of God. Think upon it. Dwell upon it. Christ shed his blood for you. The Father loved you. He is reconciled to you. And much more, he's saving you even now by the resurrected ascension life of the Christ with whom you have union. So that when you, this coming week, are burdened and concerned and worried and tempted and tried. Well, turn to Hebrews 4. You have a living Savior, a living Savior, who really rose, really ascended, really intercedes. So that in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The great scholar of New Testament Greek, A.T. Robertson, once lectured on these verses in Hebrews. The sympathy of Jesus, the love and compassion of Jesus, the living Lord, for you, his people. And having spoken of the helpfulness and tenderness of Jesus for us now, he returned to his study from his class and was sitting there, the biographer tells us, in his chair. And a beloved student followed him into the seminary study. There he found his teacher, surrounded, of course, by his books and his studies, and, and he was in tears. The biographer says, his eyes swimming in tears which overflowed to his cheeks. Dr. Robertson broke out in words of adoration for Jesus, saying to his student, And think, brother, think. He's the same Jesus now. He's the same Jesus now. Listen, my flock. He's the same Jesus now. He's the same Jesus now. Loving, compassionate, interceding for you, saving you by his life. He's the same Jesus now. And God's people said, Amen.